sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katken. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hey, Trey. It's great to be back. Well, last week we had a unique show. I got to to join in with Jay and with Mike. Um because of the unfortunate uh, passing of Mike's mother. And again, we want to be thinking about and remembering uh, Mike and his family, you know, here from the show and, and, and we'll continue to do that. But I will say it's nice to be back with you. Can, the, the difference between you and Jay are always unique. I'm, I'm the go-between in some way. <laughs> so I like to, to do that space, but I'm, I'm uh, you know, we've done this a long time now and some, I'm sometimes a little more comfortable when we're doing it, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe someday we'll have to have the, you know, uh, Jay and Ken reunite for a, a boxing match version yeah. of the politics guys. And <laughs> it could happen. <laughs> it could. I mean, it could. Who knows? All, anything is possible. Well, <laughs> this week, though, listeners, what we're going to be taking on is, is we're actually going to start by taking a look at, well, the failed attempt to change the filibuster and talk a little bit more about the voting rights bill. Uh, that was the intention for uh, modifying the filibuster rules in the the Senate. We'll also, after that, we're going to move forward and take a look at the United States Supreme Court uh, brief unsigned opinion on the January 6th committee's ability to get some documents and talk about some of the concurring opinions going on there and a dissent. Uh, we'll move from there to talking about some of the most recent developments with the New York's Attorney General as it finds some significant evidence about the Trump organization. From there, we're going to move forward and talk about gerrymandering as it might impact the 2022 and then 2024 elections. And a little bit of history there uh, on gerrymandering. We'll also have a chance to get in and talking about the Wednesday's polls on Biden and what this looks like in terms historically for him, uh, in terms of approval rating, and uh, what Ken and I think uh, his attempts this week at maybe his change in tone for uh, COVID policies, the masks, etc. And then a few smaller stories if there's time. That's what we'll be doing uh, on the show. So we're going to take a brief time out and we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, so Ken, one of the big stories this week was Democrats had hoped to change the rules of the Senate uh, in order to make a voting rights bill possible. Uh, this comes after last week, and we had talked about this, uh, my, myself and, and, and Mike and Jay, uh, about some of the, the difficulty. Biden had a rough week with his language from his Georgia speech, uh, leading to a number of Democrats defecting, uh, leading to the hope that maybe a filibuster would still be on the table. However, it would not turn out that way. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, uh, the filibuster change is going to die. Now, I know, I think, Ken, that you're going to be arguing in favor of some uh, filibuster changes. And I thought, you know, we talk about this, but I don't know how often we've actually had a chance to, uh, to kind of lay out for people. What, what in the world is the filibuster and how it moves forward? Well, the filibuster listeners, it's actually a practice of the ability of talking a bill originally to death or the idea that every senator in, uh, in the Senate has the ability to talk for an unlimited amount of time. And this was a way, therefore, in the modern times to change votes. Well, how does that all work out. And I thought I'd kind of run through this and then Ken, we could kind of talk about it in terms of what was hoped to be changed this week. 
So all the way back uh, in 1789, we actually get our first ever instance of, uh, of kind of a proto-filibuster taking place. It's an early uh, work of the Senate. Uh, Pennsylvania Senator uh, Maclay writes in his diary, quote, the design of the Virginians was to talk away the time so that we could not get the bill passed. Uh, and this is kind of what most scholars will indicate as being the, uh, the the informal filibuster. But now, the actual ability of a filibuster doesn't emerge in the Senate until much later. It's not until 1805 when Vice President Aaron Burr uh, was then presiding over the Senate. Vice presidents preside over the Senate. Uh, ironically, historically enough, freshly indicted for his murder of Alexander Hamilton in the duel. Uh, uh, and he actually offered some advice to change the way that the Senate uh, worked. He argued that the Senate was a great deliberative body, but that a true great deliberative body needed to have a cleaner bill of slate when it came to rules. Uh, he argued that the Senate kind of had a mess of rules. And so the, the, the Senate would change its rules and get rid of the opportunity to have majorities be able to end debate. So as you move forward from uh, 1805 and 1806, uh, they dropped this idea of bringing the previous question motions forward, which allows for the modern incarnation uh, uh, nation of the filibuster. Now, we still have one other piece of it, and that's what comes back to what we're talking about here in the show. And that is, well, can you ever get anybody to shut up then? Well, that's cloture. And that last piece of it would emerge in 1917 uh, when the idea that you should be able to end debate in the Senate, but to make it a supermajority. And this actually is tied to World War One. There had been a number of unsuccessful efforts to create a cloture rule in the early 1900s. Um, but in 1917, uh, you get kind of a pivotal issue. Uh, at the outset of World War One. Uh, Republicans were were able to successfully filibuster President Wilson's desired proposal uh, to arm merchant ships. Uh, and as a result, this is actually what would uh, lead Wilson to talking about them as being a little group of willful men. Um, but, the, but he demands the Senate uh, change the rules, and the Senate would so do, and they would pass that cloture rule, arguing that it was a necessary war mes uh, message uh, and as a way to have a little bit more... Um, Efficiency, And so that's where you get Rule 22 uh, out of the Wilson and the Democrats on national security. And so this would lead to the ability of having filibusters coming from Aaron Burr in a formal sense. And then this Rule 22, the ability to, with a supermajority, uh, end the um, uh, uh, filibuster. And, and I'm going to have to point out, I, I am indebted to the work of Dr. Sarah Binder uh, for what I know about uh, filibuster work. So, Ken, the, the, the Senate Democrats this week were hoping to change Rule 22, and i.e. not to have it to us apply to as many things, potentially voting right acts. So what did you think about this move? I don't think it was ever likely to happen. Did you think it was the right idea? Is it time to to, to revise the filibuster? Was this the moment? Did, did Biden and, and Senate Democrats blow it? Well, I don't want to say they blew it because they never had they never had enough votes to do <laughs> it. Was never right so, yeah. So, um, but I, I I think the policy of changing it, um, it, it, particularly with respect to voting rights legislation, is the correct policy. And I also actually think, although most people will disagree, that Schumer did the right thing by forcing a vote, um, even though the odds were he was going to lose it. I, I, I think I think I, so. I think that was right also. And why? I, I I am interested in that bit of the 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 maybe the the, the pragmatic of that. What what do you, what's the advantage there? 
Well, because I think there was maybe about a 10% chance he could win it, and it, and it was worth it for that reason. And if oh, I could explain okay. that, um, you know, the, 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 the problem he was up against is that he had two members, um, two Democrats, uh, Manchin and Cinema, who kept telling him, don't bring this up for a vote because we're not going to vote for it. Right mm-hmm. now, um, now what that basically means is um, they were they weren't going to change their mind about that, right? So if he didn't bring it up for a vote, then the chance that he would get the rule change is zero, right? But I, but I think what he thought is that if he did bring it up for a vote, that um, the the political calculation for at least for cinema and maybe for Mansion um, had a had a, a possibility of changing, not a probability of changing, but a possibility of changing. That that they, it would be an uncomfortable vote for them to take, and they didn't want to take it. But that if they had to take it, and they really had to go on record, either um, on Martin Luther King Day, um, refusing to move forward a voting rights bill, which is what they did do, you know, that maybe the pressure there would be um, enough to make them change their mind and actually move forward the voting rights bill. Now, it didn't play out that way, and I think the probability was always that it was gonna end the way it did, but I, I think he was figuring, well, there's a maybe a 10% chance that the pressure will be enough. I'll succeed, you know, versus you know, no chance at all of succeeding if I don't try. Because they'll, they'll, they were certainly Mansion and Cinema were never going to change their their position that they they'd rather not take this vote at all. Um, so I, I think he was right to push it, and I, I think he actually is no worse off than if he'd never pushed it. Um, you know, it looks it looks like a defeat for Schumer for Biden, but I think that's not actually worse than just looking completely impotent, which is how they would have looked if they never brought it. They were really between a rock and a hard place there. Now, last week, one of the arguments that Mike made was effectively that <clears throat> Democrats have overestimated the amount to which there's popular support behind some wide-sweeping voting rights changes and and brought up a number of statistics as for as a matter of fact even though we're talking about this uh, over the Martin uh, the Martin uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, um, holiday uh, among African Americans there actually isn't as much support as one might think for these kinds of measures so do you think part of the problem was the the item itself, although there is a vocal minority of people who want to have some um, ra- rather sweeping potential voting changes, for better or for worse, it doesn't have the same kind of popular position that earlier voting rights acts might have had, combined with the fact, if you take a look this past week, even among people who don't pay close attention, there's not a ton of support for changing the filibuster either. So I'm kind of wondering, I mean, uh, you have, could it even have been a 10%? Do you think that Democrats here are kind of barking up some of the wrong trees in the sense of there's they're, they have some particular vocal individuals on these two points, but they don't seem to account for a majority of either voters or voters even inside of their their own base. No, I actually don't agree with any of that. And I was actually surprised to hear Mike saying some of those things last week. So I, I think he's, um, you know, maybe losing the, the, the forest for the trees here. Um, you know, he's talking about maybe some very minor measures like um, voter ID and saying, you know, I think he said it turns out um, – Maybe African Americans don't oppose voter ID as much as um, some. Pretty supportive of it, Uh, yeah. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know the numbers on that, but I'll I'll trust that. But I I think nonetheless, um, 
African-Americans definitely understand that Republicans have been trying to restrict African-American voting in all kinds of ways. Um, and so even if you say, you know, one or two of those measures that Republicans are, are using here and there, um, African-Americans don't have specific objections to, um, it certainly adds up to a big pattern where I think that, you know, th th there's a reason that people like uh, Stacey Abrams have quite a lot of support in the African-American community uh, for the work that she does trying to help African-Americans vote. Um, it it's because African-Americans do understand that Republicans are trying to use a, a wide variety of measures um, ranging from, from voter restrictions like voter ID or quick purges of voter polls or um, um, sending out postcards to people that they have to respond if they want to stay registered or uh, re reducing the availability of early voting and mail-in voting and, and, and gerrymandering. There's all these measures all at once that are, um, you know, I think very much, you know, in fact targeted by Republicans to um, re reduce the ability of African-Americans to vote and are understood that way. So um, I looked at the polls that you sent me, Trey. I'm not as familiar with polls as, as Mike might be, mm -hmm. but the poll that you sent me showed that 67% of Americans think that it is important that Congress pass a voting rights legislation now. So I don't I don't see how that's consistent with a, the, the claim that um, uh, there's not support for this kind of legislation. I think what it comes down to is the specific items and, and what it I think you, you might be getting at the point there of, well, what are those things? As a matter of fact, one of the other items, I think I had sent this and, and if I didn't, I apologize, we can still talk about it, uh, was, you know, for example, this looks unlikely to go forward. Why not take other I mean, if. If the goal is, in fact, to secure voting in a meaningful way, why not other items that might have more popular support? I'm thinking, for example, of making Election Day a national holiday and follow the follow the line of some states that have made uh, Election Day a holiday. But, for example, when you take a look at this, uh, one of the points has been that some of the some of these measures like making national holidays for Election Day have not been true for most Democratic states, but are true for things like Florida, which which is obviously a Republican stronghold at the moment. So why not take some of those instead of just, in other words, I guess what I'm asking is it feels like a lot of this is a lot more about a posture vote than actually making any meaningful change that might get passed. Why let it die for everything that if you could make a meaningful change again, um, uh, like like the election day as a national holiday, what would you say as a pushback on that? Yeah, I reject both premises there. One premise is that if there was um, something that was more more broadly popular, um, so you're using the example of the election day holiday, mm -hmm. that, that that would give it a better chance of passing in the Senate. Um, I think that's false. Um, I, I think you, the, you don't the, think Manchin yeah. would be. In other words, you think he's going to be intractable no matter what. I think that the Republicans will filibuster, and Manchin is intractable on the filibuster rule. Remember, there were two votes um, uh, um, last week. They didn't only vote on the filibuster rule; they also voted on the bill. Mm -hmm. And 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 the, the very bill that that you're saying didn't have broad enough support. Manchin and Cinema both voted for it. They they just didn't vote to break the filibuster. So their objection was not to anything that was in the bill. And in you know in their own jurisdictions, Arizona and and West Virginia, they they don't they're not afraid. To to go back to their constituents and say, I voted for the bill. Um, it's not that the contents of the bill that was the problem. The, the problem was that they, they, they didn't want to break the filibuster rule. And that would apply to any kind of reform that would help people vote. The now, Republicans I, 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 will filibuster it. Now, I, now, now, to add a little bit there, it, you know, it has having a little bit of the Congress, 
individual congresspersons will vote radically different on the basis of whether or not they actually think a bill will pass or not pass. So while I mean, I think it's valid to say this is how they voted on a bill that they didn't think passed. For example, this can be an attempt to try to stay in with their base, even had they would they had not had voted for it, if it could have voted. I think it's you got to be careful sometimes on votes that are, I don't want to say meaningless, uh, but are solely for signaling purposes in the Mayhewian sense, rather than actual possibilities of policy passing. And, and we do see differences in how Congress persons behave. So I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily be as convinced as you are there uh, that the two of them would have been on board with it had it not been for the filibuster just on the basis of that vote. That doesn't make sense, Trey, what you're saying, because if, if, if your, your original argument was that it matters what's in the bill and that, you know, there was something wrong with what was in this bill and that's why they wouldn't pass it. But if there was a bill they'd be happier to be associated with than, than they would pass it. Um, but but my point is they passed this bill. You know, the the the, the, the only thing that they were out I mean, there they talking, voted for the bill. They, they didn't voted, pass yeah, it. They voted to yeah. pass it, right? But that they 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 didn't. They weren't afraid of the politics of what was in the voting rights bill. So they weren't afraid of the uh, politics of um, defending what was in the, the 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 bill. They were afraid of the politics of voting to break the filibuster. So that wouldn't be changed by changing what's in the bill. So, for example, then why what explains uh, Cinema's response uh, to Biden's speech last week? I mean, in in that context, she's talking specifically about his language and some of the contents. Don't you see there being? I, I see there being a disconnect in her between her comments there and the way she votes. And the way I reconcile that is with the fact that she realizes that, that it won't pass. So she basically gets two free wins. She can look more liberal uh, on a vote that won't pass while simultaneously not having to actually engage with what the actual policy would be in any meaningful way. Cinema never engages with any policy in any meaningful way. But I think that she, um, uh, when you say she realizes it's not going to pass, no, she's the cause of it not passing. She she decides whether or not it passes. Well, it's yes, not a question I'm sorry. of realizing. I, I didn't, I didn't yeah. mean to suggest that she wasn't yeah. part of that. You know, no, so, I'm sorry. So, Continue. So, yes. and, and what she's decided is that for political reasons, she wants to posture um, as though bipartisanship itself is more important than the substance of the bill. And so, she, so her position is, um, I'm not going pass the bill because it's not bipartisan, she hasn't identified one single thing in the bill that she thinks shouldn't be passed, and she did vote for it. Now, also, on the politics of it, she severely miscalculated the politics of it. Her political career is over now. It's over. Cinema is a lame duck for the next three years, and she's out of the Senate after that. She has no road back from this. So you think she can't win as a result of this particular vote? Can't win as a Republican, can't win as a Democrat, can't win as an independent. She's completely done. Okay, I, I, I will be honest. No matter where, where we agree or disagree, I love when we have these kind of specific thing, these uh, specific predictions that we can go on. I like that. Uh, okay, so cinema is done and out because of this. I like that. That's a that I'll be I'll be fascinated to see how that moves forward. Now, so let me then push back, not push back. Let me uh, wind back a little bit and ask on the broader uh, front. You arguing that the 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 filibuster practice needed to be changed in terms of voting rights. Uh, why? Do, man, I, I kind of lost yeah. my train there. I guess what I'm trying to ask, though, is it, do you think that would fix the, the, the sentence rules or do you think that's just a Band-Aid over the problem of the filibuster? 
I think the filibuster has become a problem, um, and it, it, on balance, it, it, because it's been 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 weaponized to such an extreme degree, um, it, it might be need it might be necessary to get rid of it entirely. Um, and in fact, I think because of the mechanism they were going to have to use to to get rid of it, um, which was be to break you'd have to break the Senate rules in order to get rid of it on a, on a simple majority vote. Um, that that might you know if it's done that way, then I think that means it's completely gone. Um, I, I think if if we were in a more ideal world and and there was a possibility of crafting um, you know what what would what would be a good kind of filibuster rule, um, I think having some kind of filibuster rule is get is better than, than getting rid of it entirely. Um, but but I think the kind of filibuster rule that I would want to see. Um, would would involve a talking filibuster and would involve um, that the the number of votes it would take to get cloture would diminish over time. So that, you know, if if people wanted to um, filibuster something in order to debate and draw attention to it, um, I don't have any problem with 60 votes being needed for cloture at first. But I think after um, a couple weeks, it should go down to 55. And after uh, a month or so, it should go down to to 50. Um, And and that they should have to talk the whole time about about why they're filibustering. So I think something like that could achieve all of the the goals I think the filibuster rule was supposed to have of ensuring that things couldn't be ran through without being discussed and and that um, um, you know the negative aspects of proposed bills could could be subject to some sunlight and there could be proper debate and deliberation you know I think those are sort of the good things about the filibuster and I, I think there's ways to preserve that but I think in the reality that we're in once the Senate is forced to have to break its own rules to to make new exceptions to the filibusters which is what which is the situation we would have been in then I think at that point it's un, unsustainable to have any filibuster at all and I think we are better off in a world with no filibuster at all than a, than a world with an entirely weaponized uh, filibuster that makes the Senate completely dysfunctional. Uh, I'm just going to sum up what you said, which was effect- effectively that uh, filibuster has been weaponized. And as a result of Republicans weaponizing it, there needs to be changes. But you would prefer it not to be completely gone, but rather that it w- over time would decrease. Yeah, that, that's precisely right in terms of my position. But the, the only thing I would add to that is... Um, I, I don't actually think that's possible because, I, I you know, the, the Senate rules would require um, a vote that could be filibustered to change the filibuster rules, which really means the, the only way they can be changed would be by um, violating the Senate rules. And right. that, that would work. But if that's done, um, I don't believe it's possible under those circumstances to reconstruct a different kind of filibuster rule. I think I think nobody would respect any filibuster rules going forward. So we would just be left without a filibuster. Well, let me, um, ask, about, but, yeah. let me, let me ask about that specifically, Ken, because one of the questions you're using that term and I, and I recognize why you're using it, that the, the weaponization uh, yeah. of it. <clears throat> So anytime, though, in institutional setting, you're going to have some kinds of rules to make a decision on how you make decisions. And in the Senate, we have this process of doing it in which we, we've moved towards not having a majority, but a supermajority, both for reasoned and potentially just institutionalized uh, push. But here's, I guess, my question. I think oftentimes when I hear individuals say that something has been weaponized, what I hear is, is the things, the policies that I prefer are not being successful as a result of a pre-existing institutionalized tool. But is that really weaponization or is that simply aside using a pre-existing institutionalized rule to advance their policy ends? So in short, I guess what I'm asking here is, is it 
you know, this is something that we've had in this particular form since 1917. Uh, and regardless of the precise way that it's been used in the past, the fact that it exists in the way that one can use it, is it really a weaponization? Or are you just hoping to be able to get more particular kinds of policies that you support through? I mean, so for example, would you want Republicans to be able to more easily get their policies through uh, in, in the reversed scenario? No, it's really a weapon. It's really a weaponization, and it's really a 21st century phenomenon. Um, the the w- what's changed is the routinization of the filibuster. So, for instance, between 1917 and 1994, there were only 30 filibusters. Right. That's 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 80 years. 30 filibusters. Right. So, um, beginning in 1994, which is sort of the beginning of the modern era. Um, and, and primarily when you have um, Republican Congresses and, and Democratic presidents, which was the situation in 94, um, it, it became a, a, um, the, 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 the weaponization involves saying, well, um, instead of just using the filibuster on, um, on issues that we care the most strongly about and not invoking it for every piece of legislation routinely, um, it's been changed to invoking it for every piece of legislation Routinely, it was also changed for a while to invoking it for every single nomination, including nominee, including nominees who would get 100 votes when they finally got a vote. Um, they they were filibustered, um, and uh, um, and then those rules were changed, um, and the filibuster was also changed to allow the budget reconciliation process so that the the government doesn't run out of money every single year as and and shut down. Um, which would happen under a contemporary weaponization of the filibuster. But, you know, back in the 20th century, nobody needed to have a a filibuster exception for budget reconciliation because nobody routinely tried to block a budget bill and shut down the government every year. So it was, you know, I think to, to to look at a rule that's been around since 1917 and that was only invoked 30 times in the first 80 years it was around and then and then see that now that's invoked for every single bill um, is uh, um, I, I think it's accurate to call it weaponization. Well, I, you know, I, I think it's fair when you take a look at the data to, to make that kind of argument. I oftentimes do wonder about those kinds of rules. But what you were saying at the end was effectively you don't think there's really a way to change the filibuster because you have to overcome the filibuster uh, to change the filibuster. And, and right now, for example, I mean, uh, Democrats have 50 votes. Yeah. yeah. So, for example, um, when... Um, when, when in President Obama's um, um, first in, in President Obama's first term, um, the McConnell was filibustering every single Obama nominee, and that actually caused um, the, the the Senate to to break the filibuster rule to change the filibuster rule and say, okay, from now on, um, nom- nominees other than Supreme Court nominees are are not filibusterable anymore. But but because they 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 broke the rule to change the rule, um, even though they excluded Supreme Court nominees, um, you know, as soon as the, the the shoe was on the other foot, you know, then when when McConnell had the majority and and he wanted to appoint Trump's Supreme Court nominees, you know, he said, well, you know, Harry Reid already broke the rules to change the rules. So I'll break the rules to change the rules. So, and I think there's logic to that. So I think once, once the, once, once that process starts, you, you really, you know, I don't think there, I don't think it's possible to, to preserve a 
well-crafted filibuster rule without bipartisan buy-in. So I think if that leaves us with a choice between the status quo, which is a fully weaponized filibuster rule that renders the Congress dysfunctional, um, or um, no filibuster rule at all, I think no filibuster rule is better. Um, but I wish there would be bipartisan buy-in to craft a better filibuster rule. Now, do you think it's going to be possible even then to, to, to get rid of the filibuster? I was taking a look at uh, polling data. So even assuming that uh, we do this, you know, right now, only just a, just a little over a majority of Democrats think that the filibuster should be ended uh, and uh, non definitely not majorities of either everyone or uh, nuns or Republicans do. Do you think in that environment it's just going to be pragmatically possible to be able to end it, even if that would be the in, in your view, the, the more preferable scenario? Well, it's not it's not easy to end it. And we just had a test of it and it didn't end. But um, I, I think that, that it may be it may be hard. The Dems certainly won't be able to do it unless they have at least 53 or 54 Dems in the Senate. And even then, maybe not. Um, but I wouldn't put too much stock in those polls you're talking about where people say, oh, we we wish the parties would get along better and we, we'd like to maybe keep the filibuster or we don't know enough about the filibuster to know what we think about it, which is about what a third of the people say. It's um, always a hard one. It, you're right, yeah, because yeah. filibusters are confusing. When the, 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 the poll I was citing, just for me to know, it was the uh, uh, the January 14th CBS poll uh, that had run in conjunction with YouGov. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you're right. About a third of the people are undecided because exactly. they don't understand the issue. But and what that's I think oftentimes is much the case on policy yeah. issue. It, it's incredible. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> you know, but, but it's what do you think about this? I don't know. You know I mean, that, that's a common response. But meanwhile, one thing that I think is a more significant kind of polling than that about the filibuster mm -hmm. uh, is that um, Biden's approval ratings are going way down because he's stymied, right? Like he's not getting things done, you know, and, and people don't like it when the government promises to do things and then doesn't d d doesn't get it done. And and so, you know, if you if you think that that's the that's the reality of the filibuster rule. Right. So the people might say, oh, I, I wish we had a more bipartisan Congress that could work together better and get along. And, you know, maybe we need a filibuster filibuster rule for that. But what I really, really hate is when the government is dysfunctional and gridlocked and why, why can't those bastards get anything done? You know, I, I think people would be more satisfied with a, a, a government that could get a few things done. Well, and that and now, of course, now we're getting into the to the nature of people. Right. We have a system. Now, obviously, I'm going to be careful here. We're, uh, our system was not designed with a filibuster. Right. That's not part of the constitutional framework. However, put that aside, recognize. Uh, but our system is, in fact, designed to be a difficult one in which to get things done. And, and you rightfully point out to the fact that there is a disconnect between people, especially uh, um, uh, contemporary voters, between their desire both to have a slow, deliberative process i.e. what it takes to have, you know, you know, some kinds of across the aisle work and the desire for immediate efficiency. <laughs> right. And, and, and that and that is something that has has, has played contemporary uh, congresses for some time. Well, uh, so, uh, Ken, you know, why don't we move to one more story bef uh, before we uh, 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 before we talk any more? Um, uh, because the other big item for me this week was the Supreme Court handing down a win for the January 6th committee. So I want to get to that. Um, before we get to that, let's just take a brief break. 
Okay, so uh, welcome back. And uh, so, Ken, we, we're going to talk and we were shifting gears to chat about the Supreme Court's decision this past week to, on the narrowest of grounds, uh, 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 allow, in the short opinion, that former President Trump had no standing under the law under any test. And so forth. Uh, some of his documents were going to be turned over. We got to talk about this earlier when it was filed. Now, what's unique about the decision, though, was that... The court argued, look, Trump had no standing under any of the tests he ad- advocated for. Therefore, they're going to have to turn it out over. However, what the court called unprecedented was this question of the ability of a former president, as we had talked about on the show, to overrule a current president. And on that topic, they specifically allowed it to go unsettled. They went out of their way to let it go unsettled. As I read the order, uh, in the words of the court, all of the things concerning from the lower courts concerning President Trump's status as former president must be regarded as non-binding dicta. Now, unless you happen to be a a constitutional law scholar like Ken or you happen to be (laughs) in the profession of political science like me, you might be wondering, what in the world is non-binding dicta? Well, non-binding dicta are the extraneous statements in a court uh, opinion that are not considered to have any precedential holding. In other words, they don't matter in terms of you can't point to them as bits of evidence as you move forward in similar cases, which is a big deal because a lot of what uh, the appellate court's decision was is that the former president did not have uh, the, the ability to shield these documents. So, Ken, I, I was interested. I, I know there was other things we can talk about in terms of the dissent, but I wanted to start here with the what did you think about the court ruling on such narrow grounds and effectively undoing via this non-binding dicta comment so much of what the appellate court had done? Well, I'm gonna. It, it's it's a challenge for me because I'm I'm sort of so vested in my view that we have a corrupt and partisan Supreme Court that sometimes it's hard for me to process um, counterexamples. You know, well, but, but I, I, see, think, I, think, I, I, yeah, I thought yeah. you were gonna go that way, and so yeah. what I was curious about. We only have yeah. one dissenter. It wasn't like right. you know, no, and, none and, of the liberals were willing to dissent. Well, because this opinion, I think, pokes Trump in the eye even harder. Than the DC Circuit did, right? So in the DC Circuit, you had, um, you know, um, two out of three of those judges were Democrats, and and they they decided against Trump, of course. But I think the Supreme Court's short minute order here um, decides against Trump on on even stronger grounds. They they call his case even more frivolous than what the DC Circuit was calling it, because the the um, the the DC Circuit thought that it was uh, important to the disposition um, that Trump is not the president. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the, the D.C. Circuit we talked thought, about that a bunch in, in yeah. you know, what would yeah. that look like? Yeah. Yeah. And so they said, well, you know, maybe maybe he might have a possible argument if he was a president and he could claim executive privilege. But since the president has not claimed executive privilege, um, uh, he loses. That's basically what the D.C. Circuit said. Now, what the, what the Supreme Court said, which I think is even more of a poke in the eye to Trump, is they said, we don't even have to get into that because – your claims on the facts are, are just so frivolous that even if you were the sitting president, we'd be ruling eight to one against you. Um, you know, if you were the incumbent, in the words, if you were the incumbent, yeah. If you if you were the president right now today, bringing a claim of executive privilege as president, then only Justice Thomas would think there's even any possible merit to the claim on these facts, and eight of us would say, you know, these claims are that claim would be frivolous 
even if it was raised by a sitting president. And and one of the implications of this is, you know, just imagine um, um, hypothetically that Trump somehow gets elected again in 2024. And then he decides to, um, you know, well, you know, the court uh, let Biden release all my documents. I'm going to release all Biden's documents. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, actually, what the what the Supreme Court did today is said, no, we might still rule against you on that. Whereas so the, you're uh, reading it that way. Yeah, okay. yeah, they, yeah, they might still rule against a future President Trump. They're, they're just saying that they didn't they didn't reach that issue of, um, you know, whereas the D.C. Circuit was willing to say the, the current president um, uh, gets priority over the prior president. Um, and that would have been a rule of law, right? That would have applied, you know, so if Trump became president again, then he would get priority over the prior president, Biden. Um, but no, I think I think the U.S. Supreme Court. One of the things they did, poking poking Trump in the eye so hard, is they said, "We're we're going to let um, Biden turn over your documents, but if you become president again and and you want to open you know, publicize Biden's documents, we're still going to be very open to letting him come in and argue for um, uh, executive privilege because we're not we're not um, going to say that the former president doesn't have executive privilege. We're just going to say that presidents who commit crimes and try to cover it up don't have executive, executive privilege. privilege. Yeah, when whether they're a president or a former president. Whether they're president or former president, right. So I guess here's my next, here, here, I, I, I wondered about some of that. So here's my next thing. And you even started by saying, you know, you, you have this, the, the court has to be so jaded as a result of it. But wouldn't this be another example of a potentially unified court across some of those lines? Yeah, and the fact that, that that's what I was acknowledging. Okay. I was saying it was it was kind of hard for me. I was saying this really goes oh, against I my see, ideological. I didn't take it that way when you were first yeah. saying it. I'm sorry, yeah. Ken. No, I, was, I, I wasn't I was trying saying, to poke I, at you I, twice. I try to fight against getting locked in ideology, ideologically. <laughs> no, I'm on your side on this one. I, I, I think this court, um, this was a good ruling, and it, you know, it was. Um, uh, you know, I, I think, um, you know, Justice Thomas, I don't like his ruling, but yeah, it was it was a, an eight to one ruling. And even the Kavanaugh opinion, which is the longest opinion of the bunch, um, where Kavanaugh says um, that he um, would have actually ruled that a former president can claim executive privilege. Um, he still agreed with the the other seven, though, that, um, you know, that even if we think Trump has just as much right as Biden to claim executive privilege, executive privilege doesn't apply to cover-ups of crimes. And so and it I doesn't thought apply that here. was a really, that, that, that was a really um, important statement. Because, I mean, to say, even under the case, I mean, Kevin, I mean, he's appointed by Trump, but you still wouldn't get it. <laughs> Yeah, but he but he was saying he would give Trump a presumptive executive privilege over other yes. kinds of materials, whereas the the seven in the majority said we're not even going to decide that we're we're going to leave open the question of whether a former president can ever claim executive privilege. Um, but but whereas Kavanaugh wanted to actually rule, I think he wanted to throw Trump a bone, and he wanted to say. I'm, I'm telling you, Trump, you can generally claim executive privilege in my view, but just not over these materials, but over over most of your presidential materials, you could claim executive privilege even after you're not president anymore. Yeah. For, for, for this kind of, well, I mean, it's not isolated in that sense. Um, yeah. And I, so, I, yeah, continue. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. So, I mean, we talked last time we talked about this, about the, the, the leading precedent on this subject is the case of United States versus Nixon, right. the Watergate tapes case. And in the Watergate tapes case, the nine nothing unanimous Supreme Court both recognizes that presidents enjoy a presumption of executive privilege and that most of their um, communications with their staff is privileged, um, but yet they find that there's a limited exception to that um, when the the um, asserting the privilege would would um, thwart the administration of justice. So 
that's the central holding of the Nixon case. And it seems to me that eight, eight out of nine justices um, thought that that applied exactly here. And of those eight, um, seven said, so we don't even need to worry about, you know, the question of whether his status as a former president matters. Um, but but one, Kavanaugh said, well, I would still clarify that, that uh, uh, he, he wanted to give Trump as much executive privilege as an incumbent would have. Um, but, but, that, but just to say, but that that doesn't, as in the Nixon case, that doesn't include the right to can commit obstruction of justice by the invocation of executive privilege. Do you think any of this is going to continue to kind of surround Trump? I know that Mike and I talked, I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but just maybe as a quick response, you know, Mike is almost already predicting a, a, a Trump presidency. Uh, do you see any of this as being a possibility of hurting that? Or do you think this does not have a lot of effect on those kinds of uh, the political yeah, I'm, side? I, I don't know. I think Mike, I know Mike's mom died this week. I think he was having a, a, a unusually um, uh, pessimistic pessimistic week. Yeah. Um, and he usually is somewhat optimistic. No, I don't see any Trump presidency. I think, I think the odds that Trump will be in prison by the time of that election um, are small, but I think they're about equal to the odds that he'll become president again. Oh. You know, I, yeah, I would, yeah. I would describe Sir, yeah, I, I, that. Yeah. That is yeah. one of the most effective put downs that I yeah. think that I have heard in recent times. Yeah, I'm going to say 10 to 20 percent chance in both cases. 10 to 20 percent chance he'll be president. 10 to 20 percent chance he'll be in prison before Election Day and sitting in prison <laughs> through the election. You know, m more likely, you know, better than 50 percent chance it'll be neither, I think. But uh, <laughs> but I, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think he's got big troubles not and not only uh, not only because of the January 6th committee um, but also because I do believe Merrick Garland's investigations as we've talked about are slowly working up bottom to top and you know I think he's a year out from ever having any real risk of being indicted for anything because a lot of people um, between there's levels of people between the people who ran into the Capitol on January 6th and and President Trump um, who are going to be indicted first but I think these indictments are making their way up up the hill and uh, that will continue and that won't end even if the um, Dems lose the House uh, because the Garland will be the attorney general for four years. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, so those problems are out there. He's having increasing problems um, with the um, civil and criminal fraud cases in New York. And uh, meanwhile, in Georgia, the, there was just a special uh, grand jury that's about to be impaneled as well. So uh, his his criminal and civil liabilities are going to um, his troubles are going to get worse and worse over the course of the year, and that is going to impact his ability to become the, the nominee, I think. Okay. Well, you know, I'm glad that you bring up the New York, because that's one of the things we want to talk about. But actually, we're going to save that uh, discussion for the New York, uh, for because this is going to end our ad-supported preview. So if you've been listening, I thank you so much. This is the, going to be the end of our ad-supported preview. If you'd like to listen to me and Ken as we move into talking about the New York Attorney General, gerrymandering, and a number of other stories, the way to do that uh, is to become a supporter of the politics guys. And you can do that by heading to patreon.com slash politics guys. You can also support us through PayPal by going to politicsguys.com slash support or through Venmo, where we're at Politics Guys. So again, if you'd like to continue through uh, here and also get the ad-supported uh, version, in other words, the ads go away, you get additional bits of the story, you can head to patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support or through Venmo on at Politics Guys. Uh, finally, if you are not in a position right now financially to support the show, but you would like access to that show, we can set you up with that if you just shoot an email email 
to mike at politicsguys.com. So again, if you just don't have the ability to be a financial supporter, but you are curious about what we're going to be doing next, you can again send that email to mike at politicsguys.com and they will and you'll happily get hooked up with a full show. Thank you so much.